Well, good morning, brothers and sisters. It's so good to see you this morning. Welcome to Chantilly Bible Church. I invite you to stand with us this morning as we begin to sing. Sing of our God and his amazing grace and break the power of sin and darkness. This 
Welcome you again to Chantilly Bible Church. Thanks so much for being with us, both here in person and for those of you who are watching online. We just have a few brief announcements to make this morning before we uh, turn our hearts back to worship. You've heard about it. Uh, VBS and EBC are coming up. It's the impending doom of our volunteer ministry, right? No, not really. It's just we're just so blessed to be able to put this, um, put these programs on for both our children and also children in the community. And praise the Lord, we actually have the volunteer help that we need to allow these programs to run smoothly. So God has been so great and so good and faithful for that. But we still have some slots uh, available to sign up if your kids or kids and your friends or family uh, would be interested in that as well. We wanted to make you aware of some other things that happen on our Sunday mornings as well, Sunday school classes, adult Sunday school classes that we have to go on during both services. We have some variety and some options, different subjects and some different languages, um, both in Spanish and Mandarin as well, that kind of just reflect our church body and the way that we gather together. This allows us to dig a little deeper into God's Word and into community with each other. If you're interested in those, we really invite you to check those out. Probably next week. I don't want any of y'all, you know, up and going. I know you'd rather be there than here, but, you know, just messing. But uh, we just have those available as well. Um, we're so blessed and excited to be able to celebrate our 4th of July, uh, America's Independence Day this week, and we're just so thankful and grateful for God's faithfulness to our country, allowing us to live in a nation that lets us worship freely and openly, and just God's blessings for that. And so we really hope that you enjoy the celebration this week with friends and family as we honor what God's done, and for those who have gone before that have given up their, their lives to allow us to maintain that freedom. Um, and along with that, we want to let you know that our CBC offices will actually be closed tomorrow, Monday and Tuesday, and uh, in response for that holiday, we'll be back here on Wednesday, bright and early. Um, our missionaries of the week that we'll pray for in just a little bit are the Sakamoto's who are serving in Osaka, Japan. They are helping out with English classes, various Bible studies, and local church ministry in that area. If you'd like more information about them, you can find that in your CBC news that went out earlier this week. As we draw our hearts back to worship, I invite you to stand one more time as we sing of a God who is faithful. His love never fails. We responded to sing in praise.
This week that we want to teach you it's called jesus thank you sent out on your cbc news a little earlier as we focus on these stories of people who have encountered jesus and their lives being changed and the gratefulness that they were able to bestow and us too knowing that we were dead in sin but are called alive in christ
everyone, including those who are joining us online this morning. Thank you for uh, coming out to worship our Lord and Savior. Uh, I'd like to uh, invite everybody to uh, join me in prayer. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this day and the opportunity to gather together to worship you this morning. We thank you for our country and the freedoms that we enjoy, such as the freedom to worship you. This week, as we remember the birth of our nation, we give you thanks for those who have gone before us to secure those freedoms, and for those who continue to serve in the military, police force, and other capacities to keep us safe and allow us to enjoy our lives to the fullest. We pray for their protection as they serve, and for all of those in authority to lead and govern according to godly principles. May we use these freedoms to further the work of your kingdom here in our country and to support those who live in more difficult situations as Christians throughout the world. We thank you for those on the mission field, in particular those whom we've partnered with through the years. 
We pray for the Sakamoto's and their ministry to the people of Japan. We specifically pray for the work that they're doing to strengthen marriages with their husbands and wives' marriage groups. We pray for success in building up couples who are strong in their relationships with each other and with you. And we also thank you for the opportunity to reach out to many children next week through our VBS and EBC programs. We pray for all the final preparations that will go on this week. Help those to go well. We pray for the health of all those who will be serving and participating. And we pray for the hearts of many children to be prepared to hear the gospel and to respond. Father, we pray for those in our church family who are dealing with health trials. We pray for your continued healing on Sharon Lopez, Arusha Morgan, Bill Angerman, and others in our church family as they recover from surgery and health issues. We especially lift up Tom Cantalina's father, Stan, as he recovers from significant injuries suffered during a home accident, and on top of that, grieving the loss of his wife. Give wisdom and strength to Tom and other family members as they tend to the needs of Mr. Cantalina. And we also praise you for improvements in Oliver Lamb's condition. We pray for him to continue to heal and regain functionality that he's lost as a result of an accident he suffered several weeks ago. We pray that you sustain the whole family through this trial that they are going through. We also thank you for our church staff and for all that they do to serve our body and to keep our ministries running. We pray for their strength and energy during a busy time of ministry this year, this summer. Uh, we also pray that you would raise up the right people to join us on staff to fill some of the positions that we have open currently. And we continue to pray for Pastor Milt and Val as they enjoy some time away on sabbatical. Keep them healthy and refresh them in body, soul, and spirit during this special time for them to get away, to spend time with each other and with you. And we thank you for all those who have prepared and studied to bring us messages from the pulpit during Pastor Milt's time away. We thank you for Pastor Mike and how you've equipped him as both a student of your word as well as a gifted leader for our staff. Be with him as he brings us another message in the sermon series on encounters with Jesus. May we hear your spirit's voice speaking to us through another passage from the Gospel of Mark. Help us to be willing servants of yours wherever you lead us as we encounter Jesus through your word today. We lift up all these things in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Thank you, John. Well, like John said, my name is Mike. I'm one of the pastors here, uh, and we are going to be in Mark chapter 5. So go ahead and turn there, or I guess open your app and select Mark 5. Uh, that's the way most of us get it right now. Uh, but we're going to cover a lot of ground today, so we're just going to jump right in. Uh, and I'm going to read uh, the story that we'll be in from Mark chapter 5. We're going to start in verse 21 uh, and go through the end of this chapter. So uh, just follow along with me in the Word as I read from Mark chapter 5, verse 21. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. 
Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment, for she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And the disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. And while he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But hearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing to them. Why? Uh, and when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. And taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this. And he told them to give her something to eat. This is God's word. Well, like we mentioned, we are in our summer series called Encountering Jesus, looking at the stories in the New Testament of people who had, spoiler alert, encounters with Jesus. And in these stories, we see deeper glimpses of, into the greatness of, of Jesus, but we also see how people were changed by encountering him, asking ourselves, have we encountered Jesus that way? And how is he changing us? So our story today is actually, as you can see, two stories in one. There's two characters, two very different people, but encountering Jesus in a profoundly similar way. So let's, again, jump together into the story and see how these two encounters, we see as they encounter Jesus, they encounter him in a crisis. At his feet, by faith, and receiving restoration. So let's jump, jump in together. So as you probably picked up, the story is written in kind of an A-B-A fashion. So it starts and ends with the first character, 
a ruler of the synagogue named Jairus. So uh, for context, Jesus has, been, Jesus has been busy around the Sea of Galilee. He's been teaching and preaching, doing miracles, healing the hurting, calming the storm, uh, as BJ shared with us, freaking out disciples. And now the great crowds were gathering around him as he ministers beside the sea. And running up to him through the crowd is this man named Jairus, begging and pleading for Jesus to help him. So what do we know about Jairus? Well, actually, a decent amount. So Jairus was a Jewish man, probably middle class because he was a, served as a ruler in the synagogue. And that actually was a specific role, meaning that Jairus was a lay leader in the synagogue, charged with organizing the worship service details and keeping the facility organized as well. So you could say he was a lay worship and facilities administrator. So he was at the center of the Jewish worship services and the religious community. So Jairus was probably someone who had somewhat of a social standing, would have had respect and probably even an amount of authority in the community. But we also know this about Jairus. He was in a crisis. The biggest crisis that any of us in here that are parents can think of. His precious daughter lay dying. And that word translated for her at the point of death is this word of extremes that she is in an extremely bad state, that death was imminent. So in his desperation, Jairus comes to Jesus because he's lost. He's got nothing left in himself. He's lost control. He's lost any solutions. His position can't save his daughter. He is utterly desperate and helpless. He's in crisis. And in all that he's lost, he's about to lose his most precious treasure, his daughter. And I can't imagine the fear, the panic, the desperation of that moment. As a parent, the hardest thing I can think of is to have your child suffer and there's nothing you can do for them. And to see them slip closer and closer to death and to be powerless. That's a crisis. I did get somewhat of a glimpse of what suffering through that crisis looked like this week. So on Monday, I received a call from a former CBC attender who moved away years ago, but has family still in the area. And they needed a pastor to help them perform a funeral service this past Thursday. It was a service for a four-month-old. And it was my first ever funeral service for a child and one of the hardest things I've ever done as a pastor and as a father. Because we know there's, there's nothing a parent won't do for a child who's dying, a parent who's losing their beloved, even press through a crowd and beg a miracle-working rabbi for help. And, and Jesus went with him. Jairus was encountering Jesus in a crisis. And on the way, another person encounters Jesus who couldn't be more opposite of Jairus. We don't even know her name. But what do we know about her? Well, that she too was in a crisis. She had been bleeding for 12 years and suffering great physical distress. But unlike Jairus, who had a place in society and a livelihood and a place even in the religious community, this suffering woman lost not only her health, but lost all her money. And due to Levitical law, 
that deemed any woman discharging blood to be ritually unclean while bleeding, it meant she had lost her place among the religious community and society. That's why she had to hide her way and sneak a touch of Jesus. Because the unclean were not to touch the clean. Physically lost, economically lost, socially lost, and her very worth lost. And like Jairus, she was in a crisis, and like Jairus, she ran to Jesus. So what do we learn here right away? Well, the first thing we learn is that crisis does not discriminate. Suffering plays no favorites, and nothing we can do can shield, it from us, shield us from it. We're foolish to think that our positions of power or prestige or comfortable livelihoods can keep pain and suffering at bay. Or if we can get our lives together, do the church thing, get God on our side with our religious activities, then he'll, he'll keep crisis and suffering away from us. And we see here from Jairus and the woman, two ends of the social, religious, and experienced spectrums that neither was immune from the hardships, pain, and crises of life. And why is it important for us to know that? Because we live in a world where we are often surprised by suffering. Thinking that suffering is only meant for the foolish, for the deserving, for the ungodly, for the this or the that. Thinking that if we can just make all the right choices, try to control our circumstance, or even if we do all the right churchy things, that we are owed a life free of suffering. So when we do suffer, when we face the crisis, we are doubly distressed. We suffer the hurt of the crisis, and then we suffer the hurt that we're hurting, thinking that we are entitled to a life free of pain and heartache. When we don't expect to suffer, we actually suffer twice as much. So crisis doesn't discriminate. Now, I know what you're thinking at this point. The sermon is kind of turning into a crisis. But hang on. It doesn't discriminate. <laughs> it gets better. Trust me. Second crisis, though, we also learn, never leaves us the same. It will always push us one of two directions. In every crisis, there is suffering and pain and doubt and questioning and confusion. But in those emotions, we will be pulled in one of two directions. Either we will take those pains, confusions, doubts, and harden our heart towards God and the things of God. We'll become bitter, resentful, callous, and removed. Or, in the pain and confusion, we will allow the hurt to break and even soften our hearts, turning to God in our brokenness, in our confusion, in our pain. You might have heard it said before that the same sun that bakes the clay melts the wax. The idea being that the same heat of crisis will either harden a heart or soften it. But it won't leave it the same. Crisis doesn't discriminate, but it also doesn't leave us the same. So where did Jairus and the woman's crises take them? Well, with melted hearts, it took them to encountering Jesus at his feet. We see in verse 22, it says of Jairus, then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell 
at his feet. Jairus was in crisis. Like we said, he had lost any sense of power or control or hope in himself, and he feared losing his daughter. So when the heat of crisis pressed on him, what happened? It melted his heart. It softened it. And we see that because it humbled him. Jairus didn't come and command Jesus from above him. Didn't try to negotiate with Jesus as his equal eye to eye. He begged him at his feet, publicly in front of everyone. And for those of us who truly want to encounter Jesus, Jesus might use a crisis, but whatever he uses, we first encounter Jesus at his feet in humility, in abandonment of ego and pride and self-reliance. Coming to Jesus, humbly bowing at his feet, demonstrating with our bodies what our heart confessed, that Jesus, I've got nothing, but you've got everything. And I'm not worthy of you, but I'm desperate for you. With the suffering woman, we see her humbly sneak up anonymously behind Jesus. But even after her miraculous restoration and healing, We see her at the feet of Jesus in fear and trembling. Her body demonstrating what her heart was confessing. Jesus, I've got nothing, but you've got everything. I'm not worthy of you, but I'm desperate for you. So many of us, I think, we wonder why our spiritual lives are dead. Why we don't see God moving in us or in our lives like we want, like we desire. And there's lots of reasons that might be. But one might be in how you're coming to Jesus. Maybe your heart is a little crisis-baked, a little hard. And you come to Jesus looking down on him because he's not performing for you like you want. Not giving you the life you want. Looking down on him. Or some of us are coming to Jesus, standing tall and trying to look him in the eye, negotiating the terms of our relationship with him. Jesus, tell me what your plans are for my life. (laughs) What's your plans for my relationship and my finances or my businesses, my dreams? And then I'll, I'll counter with an offer and we'll see if we can come to terms. You're either looking down on Jesus or you're trying to negotiate with Jesus eye to eye. But friends, the joy-filled life, the spirit-filled life, the faith-filled life, crisis or no crisis, begins with us encountering Jesus at his feet. It's trusting in the command of God that says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Humbly, desperate, unworthy, but expectant. It's not just coming to Jesus in crisis or simply at his feet. It's coming in expectation. It's encountering Jesus by faith. But what does that mean? What does it mean to live by faith? What does it mean to come to Jesus by faith? Well, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1 actually gives us a definition of faith. It says this, now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Did you get that? The assurance of things hoped for. Think about that. When does someone need hope? When things are good? When life's perfect? 
No. We need hope when we feel hopeless. When we are desperate, when the pain and brokenness and evil out there in the world is too much, and when the pain and brokenness and evil in here is too much too. When we are in crisis, we need hope, hope for healing, hope for justice, hope for mercy, hope for joy, hope for life, for redemption, for restoration. Faith is the assurance of those hopes convicted, fully convinced of them, even when we don't see them. So if faith is the assurance of hope and hope is only needed in crisis, well, friends, that's why as people of faith, we should be surprised when God allows the crisis because a hope-assured faith is for the crisis. That's when we need it. We see Jairus' faith, not just in his posture at Jesus' feet, but in those words in verse 23, where he says to Jesus about his daughter, come, lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. He's saying, Jesus, my hope is that you will make my daughter well, and I'm sure you can do it. The faith of the woman, after hearing the reports of Jesus, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. Jesus, my hope is that you will make me well, and I'm sure you can do it. And what does Jesus say? Daughter, your faith has made you well. Friends, our lives are all about faith. Trusting in what we can't see. Sure of the hope that seems too good to be true. And committing all we have to it. It's like the story here, coming to Jesus humbling ourselves, falling at his feet, and trusting in the reality of who he is, Jesus, God Almighty, for whom nothing is impossible, our King who reigns over every moment of every day, every molecule throughout the universe that all creation bows to and submits to, and the one when we come by faith at his feet bends low to pick us up and restore us by his grace. Faith is letting go of everything about us and grabbing a hold of Jesus. It's letting go of our efforts to heal ourselves, to fix ourselves, to prove ourselves, to rule ourselves. And it's a joyful surrender saying, God over all things, who can do all things, I'm yours. And I come to you, my only hope, in my crisis Trusting by faith, you will work the restoration and miraculous healing I hope and long for. Now, that sounds overwhelming, right? <laughs> like, I don't have that kind of faith. <laughs> like, on my best day, I would never even have that kind of faith. Well, there's actually encouragement for that in this story. So I would argue that neither did Jairus or the suffering woman. Jairus clearly demonstrated faith he had a humility, falling down before Jesus in public, believing that Jesus could heal his daughter if he wanted to. But when Jairus heard the word that his daughter had died, what does it say? It says this, but overhearing what they had said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. His daughter was dead, and understandably, Jairus' faith might have died in that moment also. But Jesus says, do not fear. 
Only believe. Jairus, don't fear. Just have faith. I bring a hope that even death cannot extinguish. So Jairus, even with a potentially shaky faith in that moment, he still received his hope. And the suffering woman, how did she come to Jesus? She's just, just longing to touch his garment and be healed and then trying to hide away afterwards. And many commentators believe that while we see in the gospel stories of, of miraculous healings by touch and even the touch of garments, they believe that this woman was actually conflating the truth that she had heard about Jesus and his ability to heal with the cultural mysticism around magic garments with healing powers, meaning she probably didn't have this perfect theological understanding of who Jesus was. Her faith wasn't perfect, but the one she had faith in was. And that's incredibly important for all of us to take encouragement from, because to, to encounter Jesus by faith is to remember this. It's not the strength of our faith that saves us, but the object of our faith that saves us. Let me say that again. It's not the strength of our faith that saves us, but the object of our faith that saves us. What is the object of our faith? It's Jesus. Our hope is in the strength of our Savior, not in the strength of our faith. So it would be tempting at this point to completely misunderstand the point of the story. Is this passage teaching that if I only have enough faith in Jesus, he will heal me and answer my prayers how I want? And if he doesn't, well, then I guess I just, I don't have enough faith. Is that the point? Well, let me tell you, it can't be. Why? Because of the rest of the Bible. The stories of men and women of deep faith who prayed to God and didn't get what they asked for. I think of the Apostle Paul who prayed to God three times for a thorn in the flesh to be removed, and God said, no. And Paul trusted that his loving God was doing something good in that hardship that Paul couldn't see. We think about the saints listed in the book of Hebrews chapter 11, that by faith did amazing things, like conquered kingdoms, stopped the mouth of lions, put foreign armies to flight and received back their dead by resurrection. But then it continues and others were tortured, <laughs> mocked, flogged, chained, imprisoned, stoned, sawn in two, and other horrible things by faith because they were following and trusting God. Living by faith is trusting that God is working a hope even when he mercifully tells us no. Perhaps the best example of how even with the deepest of faith, we still trust God when he says no is Jesus. Praying in the garden the night of his arrest. He's praying and sweating drops of blood because he's seeing a vision of the cross of God's wrath that was coming. And he prays and asks, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. In other words, Father, if there's any other way but the cross, can we do that? But then Jesus says, yet not my will, but yours be done. Father, I trust you 
even when I want it to go another way. So let me give you a quick personal example of this principle. So our oldest son, Eli, uh, who's six, he has worn glasses since he was about a year old. So uh, at around age two or so, we noticed that one of his eyes was like really weak. Uh, So for nearly five years now, he has had to patch his eye almost every day for like hours a day. So we would cover his strong eye, forcing him to use his weak eye so that it would be forced to grow stronger. Now, as a two-year-old, he struggled to understand the dynamics of ocular health and muscle development over time. (laughs) Can't tell you how many hours I wasted with that kid trying to explain that. No, just kidding. No, he didn't understand that. So, of course, he didn't want to wear his patch. Of course he didn't. How could this be good? How can forcing me to be weaker, use my weak eye, be better for me? How can limiting me be helping me? How can what seems like hurting me be an act of loving care? Of course he doesn't understand the circumstance. Of course he doesn't understand the bigger picture of how this momentary forced weakening will produce in him a lifetime of strength. Of course he doesn't see that. All he has is trust. Trusting mommy and daddy that we know more than he knows that we understand the bigger picture better than he does. But even if he doesn't get that, all he understands and trusts, mommy and daddy love me. So I'll do what they tell me to, not because of understanding, but because of relationship. And if he can trust us in our limited wisdom, how much more can we trust our Heavenly Father? Because the gap in wisdom between a two-year-old child and a 40-year-old dad is nothing compared to the gap between four-year-old dad and Almighty God. Of course you don't understand what God is doing. Of course you don't know why he is allowing that pain, why he isn't healing that suffering, why the child is running away, why that relationship isn't restored. Of course you don't understand why you lost the job or the dream fell apart or someone else got the house. Of course you don't see what God is doing over the casket of a four-month-old. Of course, living by faith doesn't mean none of those things would have happened if you just believe more. No, it means that we are letting go of ourselves, even our demands to understand and trusting in the relationship. Trusting in the heart of God, even when we don't see what he's doing. That's what it means to live by faith. But if you want something maybe just a little bit more, you know, tangible, I've made this kind of statement that kind of helps me. What it means to live by faith. It's believing in what God can do while resting in what God will do because of what God did do. So let me unpack that a little bit. Believing in what God can do. What God can do. Anything. Nothing is impossible for God. Healing the diseased, raising the dead, restoring that relationship, granting that proposal, toppling injustice. Nothing is impossible for God. So we pray and we live believing in what God can do. 
But God has not promised to give us every desire of our hearts how we want them. He can do them, but might not. But he has promised us what he will do. And there's too many promises to list, but let me give you a few. God has promised that he will be with you, that he will redeem you, forgive you, will work all things for good for those who love him, will never leave you nor forsake you, will come back for you, will bring you into his kingdom, will wipe away every tear, will make all things new. So faith is resting in the promises of what God will do. And we can trust in the promises of what he will do because of what God did do already. The redemption and restoration of all things is happening because of what Jesus did. His life, his death, his resurrection, the gospel, that the work for our promised restoration has already been done. In those famous words, it is finished. In what God did do through Jesus. That's living by faith, believing in what God can do but resting in what God will do because of what God did do. And when we live by faith, when we live in that reality, we know we will receive restoration. So let's go back to our story kind of one last time. So how great is the restoration that Jesus brings with him? Well, as we see, the woman receives, I think, a deeper restoration than she even anticipated. So let's go back to verse 29. You can follow along with me. It says this, And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. See, for this woman, her health was restored miraculously by the power of the one she fell before in faith, but much more was restored in that moment. Why did Jesus turn to the crowd and say, who touched my garments? And the disciples were like, uh, Jesus, everyone. <laughs> like, but he asks, and the woman comes before him, confesses, and Jesus reveals his restoration of her is not over yet. After she confesses, he says, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Daughter, you who were unclean, who knew it would be scandalous to touch me in your uncleanliness, who carried not just a disease, but a shame and a feeling of unworthiness, I call you daughter. I call you precious to me. I call you mine. I call you clean. Be restored. When Jairus came to Jesus, he humbled himself before Jesus in public. But I love this because Jesus exalted this woman in public. 
raised her up, restored not just her body, but restored her. He wouldn't let her slip away physically restored, but not holistically restored. So as she humbles herself before him, he exalts her before everyone. The humble will be exalted. Daughter, go in peace. And Jairus, what was restored to him? His precious child, his daughter, his beloved, his joy. When the crowd laughed at Jesus for saying she was not dead but sleeping, Jesus shows his power in verse 31. He says this, And taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. A couple things I love about this short little passage is, as a dad of a little girl, like I've woken my little Maddie up uh, by taking her hand and kind of sweetly, gently, but I'll be honest, in those moments, you don't brag about how like, strong you are. Like, I can wake up a five-year-old. Look at that. That's awesome. You don't brag in that. It doesn't take much strength. But Jesus is saying, I'm so powerful, so restoring, that I can raise the dead the way that you raise the tired. Think about that, friends. What would we say is the most hopeless situation, the biggest crisis? Death. Jesus shakes it off with a touch. And then Mark wants to emphasize the reality of the story by adding the detail. She had something to eat. Jesus is still caring about that child. Uh, and you know it's a true story, because like, why would he add that detail? Well, because it happened. Um, so what's the point of this story? That Jesus alone is our hope for restoration. Of all the things we lost, our health, our hope, our value, our worth, our joy, our everything, How is he able to be our restorer? Because he emptied himself. We have glory because he took our shame. We have forgiveness because he took our condemnation. We are rich because he became poor. We have glory and healing and health of our bodies forevermore because his body was broken for us. The reason Jesus is our restorer is because he was emptied for us. And because he was emptied out on the cross and rose again, he will bring about miraculous restoration for us. The things that our hearts long for. And it might happen today. Miracles happen. You might get a glimpse of the glory of what's coming today, but that's all it is, a glimpse of what is coming fully in that day for all of us in Christ. The full restoration of everything we lost, everything sad becomes untrue. For those who come to him by faith in who he is, and what he's done. So what does that mean for us like today? Like how do we take that and encounter Jesus like here and now? I'm just going to remind you of what we already talked about. First thing is expect to encounter Jesus in the crisis. Following Jesus, going to church, doing good things doesn't keep you from crisis. But also being unclean, ashamed, broken, and sinful doesn't keep Jesus from you. Expect to encounter Jesus in the crisis. And when you do, fall at his feet. I'm going to ask a question 
and I don't want you to answer. <laughs> When's the last time you literally got on your knees and prayed to Jesus? Do that. If you've been exploring Jesus at a distance, if you've been talking down to him from above him or trying to negotiate life with him eye to eye, humble yourself at his feet. Come to Jesus, bowing at his feet, confessing, just like this story that, Jesus, I've got nothing, but you've got everything, and I'm unworthy, but I'm desperate for you, and he will lift you up by his grace when you come to him by faith. Remember, living by faith, believing in what God can do, but resting in what God will do because of what God did do. And that's how we live. And we pray big, and we trust him, but no matter the answer, we continue to trust him by faith. And friends, we can live by faith only because of what Jesus did to give us new hearts of faith that Jesus came to rescue us from our dead hearts of sin by living the perfect sinless life we should have lived. He took the cross of our sin, condemnation, and curse, and he rose again, proving that our sin debt had been paid and the curse of sin and death were defeated. As Jesus rose that day, he brought hope with him. And just like Jesus, it's a hope that will never die. That is what God has done and so that is why we can live by faith and have hope for the restoration of all things. It's coming. Finally, embrace the power of his restoration in your life. Yes, physical healing, miracles, absolutely. We pray and ask and we see those things happen. But even more than that, that in Christ, you have already been healed and set free from your sin. Believe it healed from your selfishness and restored to generosity, healed from your pride and restored to compassion and mercy, healed from your slavery to sin and addiction and restored to freedom and life in Christ, healed from your shame and past and restored to glory and a future with Jesus, healed from finding your worth and value in your accomplishments and the eyes of others and restored to resting in your worth and value being in the eyes of the king of the universe who looked upon you, claimed you, and said, I want you. You're worth dying for. Healed from this sin-cursed world and restored to a future kingdom of forever joy with our restorer, Jesus. Encounter Jesus today, friends, by faith at his feet and be restored now and hold on to the restoration that's coming because of what he did for you. Let's pray. God, we confess your word is true. This story is true. Our restorer and redeemer came and walked this earth. He raised Jairus' daughter. He healed that suffering woman as a glimpse to the future that awaits us because of the cross and resurrection of a restoration of all things. So I pray in here with my family here, those watching online, those here with us, those that know you, that are walking through the crisis or the crisis that is around the corner or they've been trying to fight through this life in their own strength, that they would fall at your feet and by faith just turn their lives over to you and trust you, knowing that you can do anything. But even if you don't answer our prayers the way we want, we still trust you because one day you will wipe away every tear from our eyes. 
and the new heavens and new earth and glory with our restorer, Jesus. And until that day, let us shine like lights in this dark world, living by faith in the one who died and rose again. And Lord, if there's people here that have never truly encountered Jesus, they've been looking at him from afar, they've been judging him from on high, or been negotiating with him eye to eye, that today would be the day of salvation where they would abandon themselves to their only hope, their Lord and Savior and healer and restorer, Jesus. Lord, we lift these things up in the name of our risen King. Amen. We're going to conclude our time together, I think, with no better way than to take communion. So uh, if you're new or you're unfamiliar with the way that we do communion here, uh, you'll see tables around uh, the room here. And if you're serving, you can go and be dismissed. Tables up front, tables in the back. So here's what we're going to do. In just a moment, I'm going to give you a chance to take a few moments with the Lord. We live in a busy world. We probably have plans waiting for us in just a few minutes. But let's take a minute. Let the Spirit of God speak to you. If there's anything that he was tugging at your heart during this message, wrestle with him for a few minutes. So we will sit, take that time with God. And then when you're ready, you can dismiss yourself and go to one of the tables, get the elements and bring it back to your seat. And after everybody's had a chance to do that, we'll take the elements together. So take this time with the Lord, speak with him, confess with him, let him speak his grace over you. And when you're ready, dismiss yourself to get the elements and then we'll take them together. So take some time with the Lord.
The reason we have hope for healing and restoration is because the one who was broken and gave up everything to save us. The Apostle Paul reminds us of our hope in the gospel. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23, where he says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. As we conclude and turn our hearts to worship and song again, I want to read just one more verse from Peter, 1 Peter chapter 5. It talks about the hope in the crisis when he says this to the church. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you into his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's lift our voices up. Stand and sing. We serve a great God. Brings dead things to life. He gives life. He's love. He is light in the darkness. We'll sing this song of faith all together as we close.
so great so magnificent you are worthy of all the praises that we could give you bring light to the darkest of lives lord you change us for the better and help us to follow you in faith as you called us to in your name i pray amen thanks for gathering with us this morning brothers and sisters it's been good to sing with you and listen to the word together if you are in need of prayer our pastors elders and deacons will be up front here to pray with you go now in peace you're dismissed